Well, Dr. Tennyson, it is awesome to have you back on the podcast, although I'm sad in some respects because you're no longer a resident of Minneapolis. You have now moved, and we are doing this digitally, but I'm still hopeful because I know the conversation will be great, and I will see you soon. But we've done multiple in person, and now distance has us doing it this way. So I'm still glad we're talking, but hope your move and all of that has gone well. And uh, maybe you can update those who aren't familiar with what's kind of the new chapter in your life right now. Absolutely, Logan. It's great to see you as well. Phenomenal to be back on the podcast. Uh, I was, for the last 12 years, professor and for the last five, dean at North Central University in uh, downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, which is where we got connected initially. And in the last uh, two months, I've accepted a new position, and I'm now serving at the National Office of the Assemblies of God in Springfield, Missouri, uh, with the new title, Theological Council, which just basically means I'm acting in advisory capacity uh, for our national leadership. It's not, you said just basically means, but it sounds like a pretty official title. I mean, I'm not, I know you don't like to puff yourself up, but Theological Council, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Uh, yeah, it, it certainly could. Yeah, especially if, if I do this poorly. If I do this well, no one's going to notice the title. So Good. Well, I, I, I believe you will do well, and I, I truly believe this, not only since you were my professor, but even the work that we've been able to do over the past couple of years, having you at our conference and podcasts and the time where we've just had you share for staff and uh, all of the times our paths have crossed, I just continue to see God's hand on your life, uh, using you not only in the area of theology, but in the area of helping people other leaders grab a hold of it as well. And so I hope that, that we can do the same today. Uh, I, I want to start with what for us in the Assemblies of God, and I know there are many who listen to this podcast who aren't Assemblies of God, but we both are credentialed uh, ministers through the AG. I want to start with what is our first fundamental truth, which is scripture inspired. And maybe we'll do 16 videos and talk about each of the, the fundament, fundamental truths. I know uh, some of the hardcore AG people would love that. But, but there's been some conversation recently about the infallibility versus inerrancy. And I believe the word we as Assemblies of God use is infallibility, right? And maybe we could talk about the, the distinguishing between the two if there is some. But overall, I just think in culture right now, there is a reaction that scripture is not really all inspired or if it is all inspired it's not all true and if it you know even if there's some components that are true there are we can kind of interpret it how we want to because there's cultural context that we need to apply to the 21st century and although maybe there's some truth to the way we present the gospel obviously if it changes the the theology in the eyes we look at and so hope i'm hoping that that this conversation can help shed some shed some light on that but maybe we can start with that first point of infallibility inerrancy there's a lot of words that are thrown around maybe you could help us understand what the assumptions of God means, what what most people are talking about when it comes to those words, and then maybe we can talk about some more specific examples. Absolutely. Uh, inerrancy and infallibility are, are kind of interesting because there's been a huge debate for the last few years as to whether or not they mean the same. Uh, in, in one sense, what inerrancy actually means is that something is just without error, so that there's nothing in this that's wrong. Infallibility uh, is a little bit potentially stronger because it means not something is just without error, but something's not capable of being an error. 
So some something that's infallible or someone who's infallible, uh, it's just not going to be wrong uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, what some evangelicals, though, have done has uh, argued that really we should say that infallibility is a little bit less than inerrancy. So inerrancy could mean, uh, for some people, completely right and in all things that's possibly said versus infallible, meaning it's simply not wrong in those parts that relate to God's intention in giving a scripture. So it's not wrong in regards to salvation. It's not wrong in regards to matters of faith. It's not wrong in regards to matters of practice, things that God wouldn't necessarily have been trying to convey through Scripture that's still conveyed because it's written in the cultural context. Uh, that's not the same standard. Right. And so, and, and I do want to stress, too, no one is arguing that something is without error in whatever way I interpret it. Uh, my interpretation could just be wrong. I'm the one in error, not scripture. And, and there have been times where uh, Christians have very much been in error in, in what scripture means and that that has had to be corrected. If not, we wouldn't have a Protestant Reformation. <laughs> right. and, and so we've certainly had right the, these kinds of conversations for centuries. Uh, but the question is, do we think scripture is right in all ways uh, that it says do we think it's only right in the ways that God would have been trying to convey meaning to us, especially in regards to salvation, faith, and practice? And I would like to add, if I could just make it even more complicated, also the idea, do we think that it's right in all ways that would have been true at the time it was written, but not necessarily true by the standards that we're using today? So, so, for example, and I'll just throw this out here, if, if we have a time before mechanical clocks and someone says before the creation of mechanical clocks, before the creation, let's say, of, uh, of a sense of, of exactly what minute it is, and I have no way of really knowing this, and they say, you know, it's, it's, it's roughly before noon, and then, you know, later we, we are able to, to define and say with exactness it's 1139. And so someone says much earlier, this thing occurred before noon, around noon, at noon. And for the standards of the time, that's correct because that, that's really as good as we can get right. versus someone saying, nope, nope, it occurred at 1139. And it's not that the person who said something occurred at noon was wrong for their time. It's not that they were in error. Because, you know, they didn't cross the boundary from truth into error. It's that the boundary of what we consider true crossed them. Right. And so now we're like, nope, we're much more exact than this. And so I think sometimes people have called out scripture for being in error over things that it's simply our way of measuring things, our way of counting things, our, our way of understanding things. It's a cultural difference, not necessarily a difference in error truth. And so what I would say is scripture is without error. And the ways that we would have been held to the standards of truth and error at the time that something is written. And in all ways regarding faith and practice and the way that God meant for us to interpret Scripture. Oh, that's super does that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that the whenever there's a, a gotcha moment, and whether it be an apologist from another religion or an atheist or somebody who feels like they've, they kind of have a gotcha on, you know, the, my... my my desire and my hope in having these conversations is not just from an apologetic standpoint to be prepared, prepared, you know, to some of these responses, but also for our own knowledge, right, of how we interpret and understand scripture so that in our own devotional times, so that in our own reading, we can 
understand those questions that maybe sometimes send us down a rabbit trail of you read the story and you say, oh my goodness, 40 days and 40 nights and you process through that and okay, was it actually 40 days and 40 nights? Was it specifically like those types of things that, that can be true and, and, you know, feeding at the 5,000. Well, they didn't count the women and children. You know, how many did they, did they actually feed? Is it, is it inaccurate because, you know, the, they didn't count the women and children? And so those are things that I think uh, I get in my own way sometimes when reading Scripture. Can you maybe talk about that, though? In, the Bible has a lot of metaphorical language. And, of course, we look at books like Ezekiel and Revelation and the second half of Daniel and all the apocalyptic language that's there. But of course, there's there's metaphor. I mean, Jesus speaks in parables. There's so much metaphorical language. How is it as a kind of everyday theologian, but as a pastor or as a teacher or somebody who's just trying to understand this, can you help to distinguish that metaphorical language versus the specific? Sometimes Jesus gives a clear explanation to his disciples of, "All right, you people, you couldn't figure this one out. Let me spell it out for you." But there's other times where it's not it's not given clear answers for us, and we're again, the Bible's infallible. It's it's God breathed. It's without error. How do we understand that? And 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 maybe you can unpack that a little bit. Yeah, and let me let me begin by just going back to something you said at the very beginning. You know, we sometimes have these gotcha moments. I think we have to remember because I have heard people say, "Well, if God was trying to communicate this, well, why didn't He use the standards of our time?" And the answer is, you mean you wanted him to bypass every other culture before us? Because mm-hmm. the Bible is written as a multicultural book. Uh, there will be a standard of exactitude, uh, standards of truth in the future that won't make sense to us today. And if God isn't going to write his word in that sense to them and bypass us, why would he write it in that sense to us and bypass other cultures? It's going to make sense, first of all, to the culture to which it was first written. Right. And that's the culture by which we judge this. That culture has now passed this on. And so I think we have to realize in some ways what we're asking when we're asking for certain standards is we're really asking for the Bible to no longer to be a multicultural book. We want the Bible to just be ours and, and to bypass all the people who actually handed it down to us. And, and that's not what it is. Uh, in regards to, and again, this kind of brings us to the image you're asking about. What about imagery? What about uh, metaphors? You have to be able to read the Bible in the way that it would have made sense to that first generation that received it. So sometimes people talk about what is the natural meaning of Scripture. So so there's times where it's clear that this is an idiom. This is a metaphor. This is hyperbole. Uh, uh, this is literature that's still written according to the standards of their time in ways that the original audience would have understood, would have appreciated. Uh, you know, to this day, uh, I, you know, I give this sometimes as a silly example. Every time I watch the news, I know I'm being lied to at some point if I watch the local news. And where I'm being lied to is in the weather report. Because if I watch the evening news, and by the way, for, for those who don't know this anymore, local stations still carry evening news <laughs> that, that will tell you what's happening in your local town. They will give weather reports, and here's where they lie every time. They might tell you when sunrise and sunset was that day and the next day. Here's when you can expect the sun to come up. And why that's a lie is we know the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. The earth actually revolves around the sun. But that language is stuck for us. 
and I don't hear someone talk about sunrise, and I therefore assume they're lying to me hmm. because I know what they mean by sunrise, even though I believe that it's the sun that's the center of the solar system, not the earth. And so, you know, we have to be willing to understand how would this language have been appreciated in the time that it was written. And, and, it, and part of what that just means is, one, you read the context around it. If no one else is calling this out or if no one else is reacting the way we think, well, I, you know, that community should – well, maybe, maybe we're not reading it the way that they would have read it. Uh, we have to understand, again, what's the point? Uh, clearly, when Jesus is giving a parable, he's telling a made-up story. Uh, that, that, that's what it is. He's giving you an example of a certain man was on his way to Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. And, and people are like, well, we got to send out a search party to help that guy. No, you know he's telling you a story, right? He's illustrating something. There might be times where, where we're not sure if this functions as a parable. Uh, is this that kind of story? So sometimes scholars have argued, is the story of Lazarus and the rich man a parable? Uh, why does he then call him Lazarus? You know, and, and the reason why they get invested in that is that Jesus is giving us a kind of picture of afterlife. And you're like, well, is, is of course, and I say, yeah, but that's a great question. But what's the point of the story? And it's really the point of the story that we need to focus on. Uh, but certainly we need to have a better awareness of, of images and symbols and, and, and kind of what's going on here in the literature. Uh, so that we can get to the best meaning that we can of Scripture. In some ways, it almost reveals a part of God to us that I think is surprising to where you talk about infallibility and, and, and this perfection, and you know you read Second Timothy 3 and the Scripture being God-breathed, and First Thessalonians you know, that talks about this, is, this word was given to you not just by man but by God. And I think there's a formality to God sometimes that we put in the scriptures. Of course, there, there's an importance. I'm not trying to underplay that, but there's a, a humanity and a creativity and a, a story and an artistic approach that God instills in his word that I think maybe for the person who's the apologist or the person who is the you know person who's really devoted to I want to get this right and I I need to be accurate to where God actually has the, this breath of creativity in the midst of his book that maybe is some of the reason people struggle with it is maybe because of their surprise and lack of understanding of that that creativity maybe that's not making sense but I'm I'm externally processing I don't know if that resonates with you at all let me say this. I, I think because you brought up inspiration, inspiration is not the same thing as inerrancy and infallibility. And, and I want to, because I think this is what, what you're getting at. And, and stop me if you're wrong. I'm going to give you an example here. So here's, here's the Bible I keep on my desk here at work. Uh, this is the, uh, by the way, this is a great study Bible, cultural background study Bible. So I, I'm not getting any kickbacks from this company, but it's a really great study Bible. But we sometimes have the image of, of scripture as if it's like, you know, it just drops down from the heavens at us, like some kind of, in one scholar, like a holy meter. And, and, and this is how we've received it without the understanding that all scripture is God breathed. It was God breathed through human authors uh, who wrote with their own personalities, with their own experiences, with their own background. Uh, you just read in Greek or Hebrew and you understand an author like Isaiah has an amazing command of Hebrew. 
uh, in the way that he writes. You know, Isaiah is like the Shakespeare of the Old Testament, uh, where you as read another author and you're like, well, not the same. Uh, they're writing based on what they're able to do, but it is the Holy Spirit directing them. Uh, and so the question of inspiration, I, I like to call this, this is kind of the how is scripture received question. How do we receive scripture from God? And some people have wanted to talk about it in terms of an artistic sense. It's simply they're inspired in the way that any artist is inspired. Others have wanted to talk about it in a secretarial sense, as if or a dictation sense. You know, God, you know, mechanical dictation simply told you exactly what to write and you wrote it down. Of course, the problem with that is that if it's mechanical dictation, then it's only God's word based on the actual words used. So that once you translate it from Greek or Hebrew, it's actually no longer the same kind of word of God. And now translations don't have that kind of authority. Uh, but if you have, and some people have wanted to call it an incarnate view. I, I'm a little uncomfortable with that because I think Jesus' incarnation is unique. But I understand what they're saying is, is that it's, and this is the uh, title of one book who tried to convey this, it's God's word in human words. Right? It's, it's God speaking. But it's still speaking through human authorship. It's still speaking through human beings in their talents, their abilities, their education, their socioeconomic background. They're writing within the limitations of how they're able to write. And that is being given to the people. So you're going to find that kind of creativity, right? Jesus comes across as an amazing storyteller. Uh, the gospel authors, in trying to tell the story of this miracle-working, storytelling Savior uh, are themselves telling a story with a different skill set, right? Matthew doesn't tell the story the exact same way Luke does. Neither one of them tell the story the same way John does. Paul doesn't tell the story the same way. Uh, and yet they're all writing Scripture in a way that is still inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of different questions of, hey, how do we understand biblical inspiration? Uh, I, I agree with some authors who've said this, trying to explain how the Holy Spirit inspired the authors is almost like trying to explain the Holy Spirit. And, and at some point, you just have to take this as a given. And what matters is to simply say scripture is authentic. It's authentically coming from God. Uh, the second question is not the question of inspiration. It's the question of infallibility or inerrancy, which is how is scripture right? So here's how scripture received. And I would say, how is scripture right? And, and we have these debates of, of is it right just in matters pertaining to salvation? Is it, as the Assemblies of God has said, and I'll, I'll throw this out here, it, it's right in all ways, uh, verbal plenary inspiration, right? And, and therefore, we see scriptures being completely both on error and the words that are given, but not to such an extent that it can't be translated and still be the word of God. Right. And so, you know, this is the way that we've said that. What I would say is, is scripture is authentic. Scripture is also authoritative. And that however we're answering this, we can't answer it in such a way that takes away from the authenticity of scripture as God's word. We can't answer it in such a way that takes away from the authority of God's word. And by the way, answering how the scripture received, we're answering the question where, where does it come from? From God. Answering the question, how is scripture right? We're answering, why do we read it? Because it's the authority in our lives. Uh, and so how is scripture received? How is scripture right? And then I would say a third question, and this is one that we probably want to come to, is how is scripture read? And, and that's really the question here of interpretation. Okay, I, I've received this from God. I'm taking this as an authority of my life. 
Now, how do I read scripture? And many times that's where we get into debate is over different ways of answering that. Even people who hold to the, because if you don't hold to the authority of scripture, why would you even care about right. this question? And, and you might hold to the authority, but because of how you answer in the inspiration of scripture, the authority is either stronger or lesser than other Christians would hold it to be. Uh, but if you can agree that it is authentically God's word, if you can agree that this is the authority for believers in matters of faith and practice, now it comes down to that question. So how do we interpret it? How do I we read it? One of the challenges I'm seeing, and you pointed it out in kind of an obvious way, but but I think that for some people it's not obvious. They believe it. They believe the authority of Scripture until right a certain point to where mm. it conflicts with their own beliefs, and that's where I think there's a different hermeneutic. There's a different way of looking at it, and, and the way I see this play out in practice, I'll, I'll use like an example. But they, you know, I've heard the the point of no, the reason why um, there's history of of belittling of women in the Old Testament and other things is actually not, it's not God. You know, they hold a high view of God, but they're saying it's the misogyny of the mm. writers and it's the, you know, that's the issue of, of the, the book itself. God, God's design and God's plan for the book and the words were great, but every writer in their own words and their own creativity, just like Isaiah writes in the Shakespearean way, someone else you know, is going to write in a misogynistic way or is going to write in a way that's belittling of, of Gentiles or in a way that's going to prop up Jews or whatever that is. And of course there's inspirations there, but, but maybe talk about the, the, the dangers of, of pointing that out to, again, not, not the reality of their culture, but actually inferring that there is error because of the writers and not because of God. Or would you subscribe to any bit of that view at all? Or, or the text right. itself. Okay, well, let me throw out this. Wait, ask that last question. Let me make sure. I, I just didn't that. know if you if Look, you, you just, just subscribe to any bit thing. of that view or, or how how people can process through that question when it's brought up is like, well, people were just homophobic, and so that's why they wrote the way Paul was that way. So that's why he wrote it. But it's not actually God's view. Yeah, which is funny because some of those questions are simply imposing our cultural understanding on the ancient world as if they shared that understanding, you know? So somebody's homophobic, but they wouldn't have had a concept of homosexuality. And, and so, you know, we're, we're asking our own kind of questions here that I think, okay, we, we need to take a step back from that. You know, we need to recognize there are three gaps uh, between us and the biblical text that we need to be aware of three actual gaps uh, the first gap is, and again, these are kind of obvious, is the language gap. Uh, the Bible is written in Hebrew. The Bible is written in Greek. There's a little Aramaic thrown in there. Uh, and when we're reading it, we're usually not reading the Greek or Hebrew. We're reading the translation. And that translation is never going to be exact word to word because that's not how languages work. Uh, that translation might not capture all the images in the way they would have been understood. That language might not capture all the idioms. And, and, and another thing that's very different for us is scripture was originally written in order to be heard, not necessarily read. Uh, people expected to encounter scripture by hearing the text. So even the way it was written was with the intention of an audience. You know, that's why you have sometimes repetition in Scripture. Not because it's like, yeah, I've already read this a paragraph ago. No, you're not reading it, you're listening to it. 
And so you're hearing this. I, I was talking to someone yesterday who had an experience with a rabbi who was talking about how if you heard this word in Hebrew, a particular thing, it would actually have carried you know more meaning than what we're able to see in the translated text. It's because of how the word sounds. And, and certainly there's wordplay that goes on in the Bible that we don't capture in a translation. So there is always a language gap. Uh, there's also a historical gap. And that means that you're reading about a people uh, from a different time, a different place, which means that they have different probabilities and they have different possibilities. And what I mean is they live in a culture, they live in a time where the probabilities of how people lived, what people assumed, uh, went in one direction. And there were possibilities for them because sometimes, a lot of times, the biblical text is actually an outsider perspective. It's saying the thing that the greater world would not have uh, agreed with. It, it, it's, it's saying the thing that's controversial, but uh, it's still saying it within a framework that people could have understood as controversial because it's still within the possibilities of their culture, the possibilities of their world. Uh, you don't expect the Bible to say something that would have been impossible to understand to the people to which it was written. All, all of us within our particular culture have kind of an imaginative horizon that, that this is as far as we can see. This is as far as we can imagine. Our culture doesn't allow us to go beyond this. You know, I, I can see from my house to the yard next over, but I cannot see from my house to Iowa. Right. And so I might not even know Iowa was even there. And so if I read a book that's talking about Iowa, I have no idea what they're talking about. And so sometimes we're holding biblical authors to a standard as if they shared our cultural horizon, our imaginative horizon. And at the same time, we have our own that's going to be seen differently by another generation. You know, sometimes I like to give this example. It kind of gets at what you're saying. You know, we'll, we'll look at slavery in the Bible and we'll ask why the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. And we think when it critiques slavery, because there are places where it strongly critiques slavery, and it's strongly like Paul's letter to Philemon or, or you know, First Timothy 1.10, which, you know, calls out slave traders. It's, it's really undercutting slavery. And we're like, yeah, but, but why, doesn't it, why doesn't it talk about the abolition of slavery? Well, abolitionism isn't going to be a part of their imaginative horizon because slavery has always been a part of the world. In fact, it's Christians who are the first abolitionists. Uh, going all the way back to Gregory of Nyssa, first person to actually say, fourth century, hey guys, let's just do away with all slavery. Let's find a whole different economic system. But until you have that as a possibility, uh, you, you don't really have it as an option. And my analogy sometimes is this. There's a lot of people today who are working for prison reform. People who are trying to write laws to see prisons reformed, to see prisoners treated better, to see prison focused not on revenge and punishment, but on rehabilitation. But imagine a time far off in the future, we come up with a different way to respond to crime rather than incarceration, a way that, that is much more humane, a way that is much more effective. At that point, all prison will be seen as oppressive. And every person who's ever argued for prison reform will look as if they're arguing for prison. Because right. that was in our in the new world, well, man, I mean, how could you do that? Why didn't you argue for this? Well, that didn't exist for them. What they're arguing for is the possibility that they see, even though that possibility uh, might be the trajectory that eventually leads us to this other thing. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to understand there's a language gap, there's a historical gap, there's also a cultural gap, right? 
a different language and different time means there's different practices. There's different worldviews. Even among people who share the same faith, they might understand how the world functions in a different way. And the Bible has to be written to them as well. And so sometimes we're, we're asking uh, of an author that they sound like someone in the 21st century without understanding how prophetic they are in speaking in the time of their own century. You know, I, I had someone, you know, say to me before, you know, why doesn't the Bible just condemn slavery? And, and part of my answer is, well, the reason that you condemn slavery is because of the Bible. Right. Because it puts you on the trajectory. It put our world on the trajectory towards abolitionism. And, and we wouldn't be condemning it today if it wasn't for what Scripture mm-hmm. said about slavery. And, and we don't recognize that. Our, our abolitionism didn't come from another place. It came from Christians who were applying the principles to such a way that it made slavery suddenly seem impossible. And so we have to recognize that when we're reading the text, we have these gaps. We have these gaps we have to bridge. And I will just quickly throw out here four ways that I think we we can bridge those three gaps, the gaps of language, the gaps of culture, the gaps of history. One bridge, and these are not in order of importance, but one bridge is simply education. You know, I mean, one great way of, of bridging the language gap is learning to read Greek and Hebrew. And I know for a lot of people that feels impossible, but there's a lot of people that do, and suddenly you're reading the text in the original language, and you're actually picking up on all the things you wouldn't pick up. It doesn't mean it changes the meaning because we have enough people who speak Greek and Hebrew that if a translation's bad, they'll get called out for it. But still, you realize, I get the joke that's in the words that, that, that I wouldn't have gotten in an English translation. I, I get the wordplay that's going on here. Uh, uh, we can learn the culture. We can learn the history in a way that brings us closer to the actual time, closer to understanding. If we don't understand the people we're reading, we're not actually fit to judge them. Mm. And so it brings us closer to that level of understanding. Uh, another bridge is simply the church itself. Uh, the Bible doesn't just belong to individual readers. It belongs to a community that has always passed it on. And, and sometimes we have this mistaken idea that the Bible was written, written and then it was lost And then it was recovered after centuries later. And so people are trying to read the text now with this distance. There's not a distance between us and the text historically in terms of the church passing it on. Uh, We have 2 Peter actually referring to the letters of Paul as if they were already scripture. So even before the New Testament is done being written, there's a recognition that the church has already seen the New Testament as scripture, right? I, I mean, they've always had the Bible. Even if if they didn't have the opportunity to come into councils because they were illegal, so they couldn't get together to declare something canon, they still had scripture. They still recognized it as scripture. They still passed it on as scripture. And they've been doing it from generation to generation to generation. So what we have in scripture is we have something that has been passed down to us that hasn't been lost by the community, but has always interpreted it faithfully. And so we can read it as the church is a bridge for us. And passing on the interpretation, the usefulness of the text, another bridge is simply discipleship, meaning that when I'm reading the Bible, the reason the Bible was written is to help form me as someone who belongs to the people of God. And if I can read the Bible with that purpose in mind, if I'm not reading it for manipulation, which is I'm trying to get the Bible to say just what I want it to say. You know, some people, when we come to the Bible, we know what we are sure is true. 
And now we're going to make sure if the Bible is used in our culture that it says that however way we can. That We don't read it for manipulation. We don't just read it for information. We also want to read the Bible for formation. So when I come to the text, am I coming to it with the kind of attitude that I'm willing to be changed by what I read? That, that serves as a bridge, right? So education, the church, discipleship, and then finally, and, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe that it is inspired of God, meaning that we actually have the author of the text with us, uh, actually able to guide us through the text. And in our reading, we read scripture prayfully, submitting to the guidance of the text uh, the guidance of the author in reading the text so that we can actually live out the text in our lives. And so when you have someone who comes to the text and they say, well, you know, I, I believe that God meant well, but, but the author who did this, I have to say, look, we need to take it as it's written. We need to, as well as we can, read it within the history, uh, the culture, within the language, understand many times the person that we think is being bad. No, they're not reading it. They're not saying something bad. We're just reading it poorly. Uh, another example is, is and, I, and I've, I've preached this before, uh, uh, if you have someone in your church who has been, say, abused by a Christian, let's say they were raised in a really abusive home. And let's say within that home, when their mom or dad was abusing them, they were quoting the same scripture at them. You know, something to kind of justify the review. So I'm going to quote the scripture at you as, as I'm beating you, right? Now I get up in church and I preach that same text. They may not hear my voice. They certainly won't hear God's voice. They might hear the voice of their abuser. And they so associate that text with their abuse, they can't help but see that text mm -hmm. as abusive. Even if the text right. isn't. It's just because of how that text has been used over them and in their life. And we certainly have examples of Christians using text in abusive ways, even though that's not at all what, what was the intention or usefulness of that text to the church globally, the church historically. But it might have been used in that way to an isolated group of Christians in this time. But that time can also extend for someone's right. lifetime. And so we have to learn to separate that kind of negative history, which is a real history, from, from what God is actually saying and even from what the people writing this. Paul is not a misogynist, but certainly there have been people who have used verses by Paul uh, to support the oppression of women. But Paul himself is absolutely not a misogynist. That is not the picture of Paul that we have in the book of Acts. That's not the Paul who writes to women constantly as his co-workers in the faith. That, that's not how Paul behaves. But certainly we, we read that in because of how people have selectively read Paul to do their own thing. And now we think that they're the better interpreters of Scripture because we agree with them on how they read Paul. And that's just crazy. And that may have gone much more than what you were asking there, Logan. So our Wi-Fi just cut out on us and it's back now. So I will ask my final question. And every time we do things Technologically, of course, we get an error, but uh, I will not claim that it is anyone's fault aside from the technology itself. But 
the you were wrapping up talking about the 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 spirit obviously guides us as we read this there's people who abuse the text there's people who use the text in abuse of people obviously we read that into it one of the things that you mentioned earlier is the manipulation we read it with a manipulative view to try and get our own our own view of scripture to come out of it and it's it's actually I wouldn't say always the easiest thing to do, but I think it's easier than we realize to manipulate the text, to cherry pick different verses and actually make it say things that it doesn't say. Of course, even in this own in this interview right now, someone could cut it up and make us say things that we didn't mean to say at all. And so if it can be done with a short, you know, half hour, 40 minute conversation, then how much more 66 books that have been translated into multiple languages. And so you talked obviously about all the positive ways that we can understand these cultural things. What are ways that we can maybe understand if somebody is manipulating it, whether it be a pastor on stage, again, maybe not intentionally, or there's other people that are on Twitter or out that are intentionally manipulating scripture that is used to say it in a way that shares their narrative, whether it be a political narrative or whether it be a lack of repentance to, I don't need to repent of that sin. I do think we see people that their view is, I'm going to utilize this. And, you know, for many of the 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 flock that they lead, maybe they grab a hold of that as truth. And they're, the manip- manipulator of scripture ends up being their guide. I, I think that's entirely possible because it's absolutely happened throughout church history. Uh, and, and the reason is, is there's always an audience for something. And if I can get scripture to say what that audience wants to hear, you know, one question I think we should ask ourselves, and, and I've, I've said this before, you know, there's certain questions I have for, for when I read the Bible that I like to ask myself and I've sometimes asked congregations is when's the last time reading the Bible made you uncomfortable? When's the last time reading the Bible changed your mind? You know, I mean, if, if I'm only reading it to hear what I already think, in a sense, the Bible really was unnecessary right. for me to be formed. And if you're in a community where, where everything that's said is, is just to great applause and no one is being challenged and no one is being changed, and certainly because the great theme of Scripture revolves around Jesus – if, if this is not a community that's becoming more like Christ, how is scripture even being used here? You, you know, I, let me say this very quickly because you said this earlier, and I don't want to miss this. We, we went back to inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility. But in that great verse you, you mentioned here, 2 Timothy 3.16, it doesn't just say that all scripture is God-breathed. It also says that all scripture is useful. And it's useful for what? For, for correction, for uh, rebuke, for training in righteousness. And I think we have to ask ourselves when we're interpreting Scripture, are we interpreting it in the way that is useful for us to become formed after the image of Christ? Uh, that's the point. If I find a church using Scripture in such a way that they become more bloodthirsty, right. that is a bad interpretation of Scripture. If I find a church using scripture in such a way that they lose their love for others, that is a bad interpretation of scripture. If I find scripture being done in such a way that I'm justifying my own desires as being the point of my life and I'm making life about self-fulfillment rather than the calling of God, that's a bad reading of scripture. And, And so you have to, in some sense, look at scripture in terms of the end goal of how it's being used. 
Is this forming us into a person reflecting the character of Christ, which includes love, includes the holiness that God wants for believers, includes being part of one community globally? Or is it something that's being used to just prop up one kind of political tribe against another? And and if so, that is a bad reading. You know, I'll give you right now, and this this is this is quick. This is not an exhaustive list, but can I give you five ways of reading sure, the Bible? Yeah, we poorly? have the ways to read it well, and now now uh, just as an example. Well, let's do some ways to read it poorly. Number one, I like to, and these these are my own, and so so uh, uh, this is just, but I like to call it the ransom note reading. And have you ever seen a, a ransom note like on television where they cut? letters and words out to make this ransom note, you know, I have your child. And, and yet, you know, it, the point of the ransom note is so that you right. can't identify who the author is. And sometimes people have so cut up scripture to create something that they want to say that you can no longer see God as the author of that. They basically have turned scripture into kind of ransom note uh, to in order to, to justify whatever they already believed. But that's not the Bible, right? I, I can't take half of this verse and half of that verse and then just try to fit them together. Uh, some people do what I like to call poor translation readings, where, where they don't like what it says. So they try to find if there's any way they can retranslate this from the Greek or Hebrew. Can this word also mean that word? Could this be this? Could this be that? In a way that, that isn't, isn't a part of how the community has read it. And we don't find examples of the first generation or so who received this reading it this way. But, oh, no, we're, we're going to try and make it fit in a way that only makes sense in our cultural context. And you're like, OK, well, that, that's a poor reading. Uh, some who simply and a lot of Christians do this. We read it by the verse, not by the story. Uh, you know, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. Those are just, in a way, page notes, page numbers helping us find our place in the text. So it's a lot easier to say to a congregation, turn to Isaiah 4610, uh, than it is to say, okay, everyone start reading here in the middle of Isaiah. But what we do then is we take that chapter and verse and we make it an isolated reading. So now we start comparing verses with each other, always being read out of context. Or we start having reductionist readings of Scripture, as if the Bible is kind of like this flat text, and every verse is its own fortune cookie, and I, and I can, you know, saying, and I can just pull it out. Uh, we sometimes have what I like to call false equivalency readings, where we make false comparisons in Scripture. So here God says, don't eat shellfish, but we eat lobster today. And God also says this, and we shouldn't worry about that today as well. And you're like, well, why do you think it says this? Why do you think it says that? How do you make this comparison? Well, well, I found it in the same book. That's not enough. How are you making this comparison? You need to understand what's behind it to be able to relate it in that way. Uh, sometimes we have, and, and a lot of Christians struggle with this, what we might just call naive readings of Scripture, where we read the Bible without the awareness of history, culture, or language. And what happens is I'm reading it based entirely on my own experience or feelings without trying to get to know it better. Uh, if we really believe the Bible is from God and we really believe the Bible is the authority in our lives, we're going to give our attention to studying the Bible. Otherwise, there's something weird about us as Christians not caring that God said it and that we have it, right? I mean, I mean, how are you not taking that seriously? And so, you know, you have the Bible study where the way they do is they simply read a text out loud and one person says to another person, and how does that make you feel? 
And while that can be a great way to begin the conversation, at some point, it can't just be about how does your experience hit this text or vice versa? What does the text actually mean? How do we get to what the text means? And how do we submit to what it's saying to us in such a way that I'm willing to change my life because of what I've read? Uh, and then we could have what I like to call a greatest hits reading, where we sometimes treat the Bible like it's nothing more than a greatest hits album. And I only go back to the passages I like sure. to read again and again. And I, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast before, places, but I've sometimes asked my students, if you took out every page of scripture you haven't read in right. the last five years, and every page you're not mm. planning to read in the next five years, right. how big would your Bible be? And I'm giving you a whole decade here. But how big would your Bible be? Because the truth is, if we're reading the Bible like it's a greatest hits album, all we're doing is we're reading the Bible for comfort. I'm reading the Bible to confirm what I already think. I'm not reading the Bible to change me. I'm not reading the Bible so I can conform to it. I'm reading the Bible again and again in a sense so that it keeps conforming yeah, to me. And so all of these ways are poor ways of reading Scripture. It, no, and that's not no. exhaustive, but it's just ways of making you think, how am I approaching so the text here? Because, I mean, you've given us handles both for and against, but I think it's all, it's all to help us to understand how am I. And, and I think the, that last part that you said, the greatest hits, I, I think most Christians find themselves there, right? And we as a church, we try to do a good job of saying to people, hey, let's read other parts of Scripture. Let's read Revelation, if you're, even if you're afraid. Let's read Ezekiel. Let's read, you know, the minor prophets. You know, let's not just read, you know, Proverbs and the Gospels, although we do emphasize those more frequently than maybe other passages. I think that it's an important thing for those who are maybe putting together Scripture. But then I also think it goes to, and this could open up a whole another can. We, you know, we got to end, end the conversation at some point. But it goes towards maybe the reason we don't teach it is because of our own lack of understanding and to where there are certain books of Scripture that when you start to understand them, they come off the page and, and you go, how have we not talked about this before? How have I not understood this? And so I think in some ways it's more of a, an exciting opportunity rather than a negative one to say, look at all the other things that you've not yet taught on or you've not yet learned about that God wants to reveal things to you. And I think rather than looking at it from a, a aha got you place, looking at it more from a look at the opportunity of the breadth of this book, that there is so much more to learn and teach and glean from because God breathed all of it. And so that's really a kind of a, a beginning at the end. Any last, last thoughts for all those listening today? My, my word, yes, because you just, you just pushed something in me when you said that. We need to read this for, for these two major things, for both understanding, what does it actually mean? How can I best get it? And that doesn't mean we always agree on that, but we can read it with, with different ideas without necessarily disagreeing with each other. So, so quickly, you know, if I read the story of David and Bathsheba and, and him getting accused by God through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 here, I, I might say, okay, what is the meaning of this? Well, one meaning is that God holds the king accountable for justice. The king can't do whatever he wants because God is actually the king. Another meaning is that God is against adultery and God is against murder. And one person can say, well, I think it means this. I think it means that. Those meanings aren't contradicting each other, right? 
But if someone reads it and they say, what I think it means is if you're going to kill somebody, you got to make sure you don't get caught. I'm like, no, that, that's not really the meaning here, right? Like, like, so there's some things that can't mean. There are, are different meanings that can still fit together with each other. But here's the thing. We read it for understanding, but we also read it for usefulness. How am I reading the minor prophets in a way that actually teaches me what to do, teaches our congregation what to do? How am I leading them in? If Amos says this, here's what we should be doing. If, if Leviticus, and again, you know, I asked what I was how many of you was the last time you had devotions in Leviticus? But, but Leviticus has something to say to us, that it's not just there to understand for information, it's there for formation. So we read for understanding, we read for usefulness, and some people have said, well, well, how do we read anything for usefulness? And two questions I like to say is, you read something for worship and you read something for ethics. Right? We're called to do what? We're called to love God with all our being. We're called to love our neighbor as if they were us. The thing that scripture should do in forming us is make us better at love. Make us better at the worship of God. Give us a deeper understanding of God, a better understanding of God, a, a way to praise God and interact with God because it gives us that richness of who God is in the text, but also a better way of inhabiting the world we live in in love. And, and loving our neighbor, which includes for Jesus and the Good Samaritan, the person we'd count as the enemy. Learning to love them, learning to be the way that God wants me to be for them, and the reading of Scripture, the reading of the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament, should lead us towards that. So here's how I actually want to end, Logan, and this is my final thing, I promise, but I love talking about the Bible. Can I read for you very quickly? This is from John Wesley. John Wesley, when he wrote on the Old Testament in his preface to the Old Testament, gave guidelines on how to read the Bible. And, and to this day, I think this holds up as instruction. And you're not going to have hardly a higher authority than John Wesley for the English language. So here's, here's Brother Wesley, and here's what he said. He, he gave a, a handful of guidelines. He said, one, you've got to make the time to read the Bible consistently. And he didn't just mean, you know, you know, make the time. What he meant was you've got to make that a regular part of your routine. That consistency means that this is something I'm, I'm constantly coming back to, and I know when I'm going to come back to it, right? I've actually made space. Just like, you know, I, I consistently make time to brush my teeth. I don't wait until part of the day, and if I feel like I have the time, then I'm going to brush my teeth. No, I know when I'm going to brush my teeth in the morning and at night and, and sometimes in the middle of the day. I know when I'm going to take a shower. I know when I'm going to eat, right? I have these things to read scripture consistently. He also said, read from both the Old and the New Testament. He wanted to make sure that we didn't turn the Bible into greatest hits album, right? Make sure that as you're reading, you're reading throughout scripture and not just sticking with one part of scripture. Uh, read in order to learn and do the will of God. Uh, the point of reading is obedience, uh, he said, read in light of the main teachings of Scripture, like creation, fall, salvation, holiness, kingdom of God. Let those main teachings help be your guide in what matters, because Scripture should be together as one narrative. Read prayerfully, open to the Spirit who inspired it. And then finally, he said, read with pauses mm -hmm. to examine yourself. As you read Scripture, take a moment to stop and say, how is this affecting me now. This is where the feelings question can come in, but it's not my feelings first, it's the text first, and now am I someone who says I'm living out what this does? Well, Wesley says it best as always, right? <laughs> yes, That's he does. Awesome. Well, thank you for 
the time and the the energy of devoting this to people. I know there's there's so much more that we can talk about, and we still have 15 more fundamental truths to discuss. So uh, un- until next time, I'm looking forward to the conversation, and I hope that this helps people to understand and love Scripture more and help people to understand it better as they teach it as well for many listening. Thank you for all you do, all you've done, and all you're going to continue to do for the National Office as you counsel all of us theologically Thank you. Logan, thank you so much for having me back on. It's great to see you again. 